Welcome to the Everyday Journey podcast. I'm your host, Vasily Mazin, coming at you from New York City. The idea behind this project is to interview people who are outstanding in their field one way or another. The thing will undoubtedly emerge on its own as we go along on this journey, casting a spotlight on one character at a time. My guest today is an entrepreneur and a doctor. He works at a hospital in Sydney, Australia, and is a co-founder of a startup that produces and sells socks for good causes. He's lived in various locations around the world, pursuing an, an internship at the European Office of the World Health Organization. Recently, he gave a talk at TEDx on the subject of selfishness. As a good Aussie, he loves his pet wombat, drinks fosters, and hunts crocodiles in the outback. Dear listeners, I give you Hassan Ahmad. Thank you for the very kind and more or less accurate introduction, Vasilia. I could say that one of those three activities in terms of Australiana is, is pretty on point. I think I'll just leave it up to the listeners to, to, guess to just which guess which one it is, yeah. Guess which animal or drink <laughs> you have an affinity that's, for. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But do you see a lot of animals around your house that are native to Australia? Yeah, well, uh, as you mentioned, I'm currently based in Sydney at the moment, which is the largest city in Australia with a population of about 4 million. So most of the at least interesting wildlife gets driven out to the edges of the city. So you're sort of just left with bugs that freak out a lot of tourists. But where I grew up in far north Queensland on a sort of 80-acre property, you know, it was part of, you know, one of the great things about growing up there was the wildlife that was literally on your doorstep. You know, you just walk out to the veranda in the morning and there'd be sort of uh, you know, there'd be bush turkeys there that you'd feed or there'd be wallabies there. And, you know, if you go and have a look, you can sort of see the, the tree kangaroos and the, um, you know, the big pythons. And there's lots of great stories sort of from my childhood about, you know, <laughs> run-ins with wildlife along the way. And, yeah, you know, it's just when you sort of grow up with it, it's just there all the time. And you don't realize that other people don't just have problems with snakes in their beds and spiders in their, you don't, in their toilets. Yeah. <laughs> no, until you sort of travel a bit more and, and see American tourists freak out over cockroaches. So, yeah. Okay. So, growing up in Australia trains you to be more accepting of animals and insects. I think so. Um, I think it's been useful, you know, in, in, in my travels. You know, you find yourself in some fairly uh, uh, strange locations, fairly Spartan environments sometimes uh, with with exposure to the elements, you know, Southeast Asia probably is what comes to mind. And, you know, knowing that sort of like, oh, well, there's nothing that's going to crawl on me in the night that can be worse than eight of the 10 most venomous snakes in the world and the largest spiders. So, it, you know, it helps you relax a little bit more, I think. I can see that. Yeah. I once went to San Diego Zoo and I saw the entire roster, what do you call it, the entire lineup of yeah. Uh, yeah. Australian animals. Oh, okay. And I was like, this is some kind of a alien animal kingdom. <laughs> I didn't know those existed. I didn't know there were so many kangaroo-like animals that are mm. smaller in the middle, you know, large. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, because I guess because of the geographical isolation of Australia, it, um, you know, you just have this fairly large and diverse environment in which you have the evolution of a lot of animals, which are very different from what a lot of people have seen, uh, around the world. And it's funny, you know, they had, um, 
I'm gonna. I'm not exactly sure how long ago. If it was fifteen thousand years or fifty thousand years. The sort of megaflora and the megafauna. So the they had wombats the size of cars and and sort of kangaroos that were, you know, ten feet tall. And they had no natural predators because mm. there was just nothing there that would kill them until the sort of indigenous Australians came down from the sort of islands north and they just ate them all because they were very easy and very delicious prey that wouldn't run anywhere when they just turned up and threw spears at them. So so they were like furry dinosaurs. Yeah, basically. They're huge, huge. But, you know, no, no defense against the human spear. So they all got eaten. <laughs> okay. So you grew up in a small village-like place? Or what is it? Like a small town? Yeah. It's a rural town in uh, far north Queensland, which is a state of Australia, probably about four hours from the nearest McDonald's or cinema. Not even a big uh, city. Just, no, just the McDonald's. Big city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so about two thousand people. So yeah, fairly rural. Were you gradually exposed to uh, larger urban areas? Yeah, I really was, um, and I'm sort of glad that it happened like that. You know, I went to school in this really small town and would have trips to the nearest city. A few, you know, once or twice a year throughout my youth, um, and you know, I was like, oh wow, going to the big city of Cairns, which is like 150,000 people. And then I went there for the last three years of boarding school, um, which was a really great experience, um, and sort of exposed me a little bit more to, you know, say culture and the big city experience. And then I, from there, moved to Sydney for university, uh, which again was another step up and. Um, yeah, from there, sort of went out and lived in various cities around the world, the most recent and largest being New York. And I think the gradual step up as I got older was good because, you know, I wouldn't have been ready to go from a really small town to a really large one just sort of off the bat. And I think it helps you appreciate more as you go along. Do you think you can um, pick up on the differences between people who grew up in uh, huge cities in yourself mm, and peers from mm. your hometown? I think so. Uh, you know, I feel that if you grow up in a small town, you can always sort of move to the city and become domesticated, so to speak. <laughs> so you can, you know, move to Sydney or move to New York and fairly well fit in there um, and become familiar and comfortable with the culture and, uh, you know, the social norms, which might be a little different from a small town. But it's and you sort of but you retain the the understanding and the values that come from living in, you know, smaller rural towns and the the community feel and the um you know the connection to the people around you and also the the environment in some case but i think it's harder to go the other way um certainly while you're younger you know you don't sort of grow up in new york city and then move to you know rural kansas or something and fit in really well immediately um, I, think, I think those people miss the big city and stay bitter for a while. Right? And can't, exactly. Can't wait to go back to uh, exactly places right. where they have pizza around the corner and all this kind of stuff. That's right. I think if the benchmark is set for the convenience of the city, then it's hard to be satisfied with uh, with less later on. I remember you told me your dad was a DJ. Yeah. Did you go to any parties with your dad as a teenager or something like that? Yeah, I think, um, I don't remember back to the first party I went to with my dad. Uh, so I didn't grow up with him, 
and I saw him intermittently as a teenager and I was less interested in, you know, that kind of lifestyle or music or parties in general um, until I, you know, became a bit older uh, and had sort of finished high school and whatnot. And then after that, it had been awesome. You know, now I was sort of able to go with my dad to these sort of met him once in Amsterdam and he knows that place really well and went to some amazing underground parties there and in Australia. You know, I remember <laughs> we went to this this like we call them bush doofs here, which are these sort of raves that they have out in the middle of the bush for a couple of days. And, you know, I hadn't been to one of these properly before. And I turned up with my dad and we we're just walking through the crowd and I couldn't I was there with my friend and I just couldn't believe it because we couldn't walk two meters without someone being like, oh, Asmi, what's up? And he's like, oh, hey. And I swear everyone at this festival knew my dad, who was like, you know, this old sort of hippie DJ dude. And I was just amazed, amazed. What was his DJ name? Uh, he's, I think his DJ name was Safix, S A double F I X. But I'll have to. I'm actually seeing him tonight. He's flying in from Melbourne. Uh, oh, cool. So, so I'll have to. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. Go down the memory lane. Yeah, that's right. I used to be an active DJ. Now I'm kind of, I'm able to, but I don't pursue it, right? And I think it was the same genre as your dad. Side yeah. trance. Yep. So I, yep, I can totally right. imagine his vibe. <laughs> and, knowing, <laughs> yeah. and knowing him at festivals and stuff, I can imagine that, that there were some men and women of my parents' age at those festivals and it would always amaze me and, and inspire me. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I want to keep doing that. When I'm there, yeah, it's it's impressive that he can sort of sort of just live that lifestyle and and live in that um, sort of community for so long. But I guess you know once you find your community or your family, wherever it is, you know there's no reason to really leave if that's really what makes you happy and the people in there you connect with. So it's it's cool to see. You took a quite a different path from your dad, and now you are a doctor. Apparently so. So, <laughs> so they tell me. <laughs> I'm not a doctor, I just play one on TV. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how did you become a doctor? And what does it take in Australia to become one? Yeah, so um, the the system here is in a bit of a transition at the moment, um, sort of moving towards the American model in terms of the uh, the way that they set up the degree. So you, do, you have an undergraduate degree of some kind, um, be it arts or science or, or whatever, and then... Uh, and then you apply for postgraduate, which is about generally four years. So three year undergraduate, four year postgraduate, uh, seven years all up. I went to an uh, a university. I went to the University of New South Wales, which is an undergraduate degree. So you just go, you come straight in after high school, and it's six years, which is good um, because once you're in, you're in kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think I was probably one of the first in my family, if not the first, to go to university. And it was sort of the decision that my mum made to send me to boarding school sort of put me in an environment where, you know, it was more competitive, I think, and sort of had the educational opportunities to do well. Boarding Um, school was a bit like a boot camp style. Uh, Yeah, like I think, yeah, it's not so big in the States. Basically, you go there and you just live at school. and And it was actually awesome because I thought I'd hate it. But I went there and it was actually some of the best years of my life. You go there and you're living in this huge sort of dormitory with all your mates, basically. You know, you're living with like 30 of your best mates. Um, and if you're not, then you will become so. And yeah, you know, you just you become incredibly close to these people in a way that 
only living with people and going through various sort of you know nonsense of high school and, and homework and all, all the kind of stuff that comes with that. But it, uh, it had the usual issues of bullying and, and cliques getting formed yeah. and stuff like that, right? Or was it pretty uh, yeah. friendly? Yeah, no, it was actually, it was pretty good because you know, in Australia you grow up and you see, you know, the uh, the American kind of high school stereotypes and you have the big cafeteria and the jocks all sitting together and the cheerleaders sitting together and it wasn't really, it wasn't like that. So for a start it was an all boys school. So that unfortunately removes all the cheerleaders immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did, we did, it was a pretty good setup because we had our sister school would come and they, they lived with us. So they'd live on campus, but then at a day they'd go away and do their learning at their school. So it was great. You know, you'd have your sort of masculine learning in the day, uh, uninterrupted by the feminine wiles of, of young 16-year-old women. And uh, and then in the nighttime, they'd come back and you dine with them and, you know, you, you sort of learn those social skills and don't become... <laughs> a bit sort of stunted as a result so it was really good it was a lot less clicky again it was it was a city but it was still fairly rural so you have a lot of you know guys come in from properties and you have you know a lot of the boys from the Torres Strait Islands and so you have a pretty good mix of people with not a lot of um not, not a lot of elitism at all mm-hmm. um and, even, even playing know, field well yeah basically you know and like it was a sports school and so the guys that were on the rugby team you know, they were on the rugby team kind of thing. But at the same time, it, it also valued, you know, people that did well in academics and people that did well in, in music and stuff. So I was actually really lucky because it could have gone, it could have gone anyway. Cool. So that kind of prepared you for a more serious education. Yeah, that's right. So when you graduated, you traveled the world a little bit and where'd you go? Yeah. So I, um, you know, I, was, I finished high school and got a good, good enough grade. So I sort of went and did medicine because that's what you do and so I was pretty young at the time went straight down to Sydney and then after one year of uni I took my first kind of around the world trip I met a I met a guy from the University of Virginia a frat guy and who, who came sort of on exchange became really good mates with him and then at some stage he was like you know do you want to come and live in his frat house for a bit come visit and again going back to all those visions I'd had of fraternity living in American colleges, I was like, oh, hell yeah, I have to do that. And with, I think with the Round the World tickets, at least at the time, you have to get three locations. So I went, first I went to the Alps in France. My friend's dad had like a little taxi company there. So I went and stayed there and that was awesome. Um, my first sort of exposure to European culture, which is this whole other depth of culture and of history. Yeah, that was really great, you know, because you just don't get that there's, there's not that depth of culture in Australia. There's not that history. There's not that sort of refinement. And I, I, st- I think I still am sort of very enamored with European culture as a result of that. Um, and, yeah, then I went to Virginia and, and uh, <laughs> stayed at this guy's frat house. So that was I, – I went there during, like, Rush or whatever – um, where the, where the, all the new guys that want to join the frat have to like, they go to all the different houses and party and sort of go through all these ridiculous events and stuff. And then they all pledged and it was, I, <laughs> it was, was just hilarious. Was it like in the movies? It really was, man. Like they got, they, they got this room full of all the new guys, blindfolded them, turned and just had recording of static. And they just cranked it up and just left these guys in the room for like four hours. And every now and then some guy would walk in there and like, cause it made them think that there was always a guy in there. 
And he'd open the door and just yell at them and then close the door and come downstairs and just everyone would just sort of piss themselves laughing. And then uh, and then one hazing. by one, they'd sort of, yeah, it was hazing. And then one by one, they'd bring them down the stairs and and uh, make them think that something terrible was going to happen, but it didn't. It was really, yeah, it was really entertaining. Uh, so that was good fun. And then I went over to London um, and I was supposed to meet up with a friend of mine, but she bailed on me. So I just ended up going to a hostel and I was only like 17 at the time or something. And I was just like pretty miserable because it was the first time I just by myself anywhere. And then just sort of, you know, manned up, went to the hostel bar and met a bunch of people. And as you do, you know, travel around with people that you probably wouldn't have otherwise met or spent time with. And um, yeah, so that was sort of my first travel experience, the tender age of 17. And yeah, it was sort of only up from there. I just really... That's a good start. That's more than most people can uh, say they've experienced at that age. Yeah, yeah it's covered yeah. Covered quite a lot of ground. Are you an active entrepreneur right now, or is this is a little bit in the past? Yeah, so I'm absolutely still active. It's 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 hard. It's much harder though when you're working a full time job, as you can imagine. So mm-hmm. um, after after I finished university, I went and moved to New York with a co with my co founder, and we started a company called Conscious Step, which is as you mentioned, we make socially conscious socks. So we partner each different sock design with a different nonprofit partner. And there's an impact associated with each pair. So you buy a pair and it'll donate two books or another pair will plant 20 trees and so on. Yeah, we did a crowdfunding campaign my last sort of year of university and we pulled it off. And I remember the same, it was a pretty big day. I got my results back from my final exams that I passed and we'd also finish our crowdfunding campaign so i think i've i remember just sort of skipping skipping down the street that was a good day yeah so, i really had the decision so, so you had the choice you could, you could um, exactly. move on with your doctor career or you could continue with the startup exactly right and it really put it in contrast because there were these two decisions that really would take me in very separate directions but, you know i think luckily you didn't you had two years before you had to go and start working in a hospital and you know up until now up until that point I'd sort of one of the lessons I'd learned was you know just by putting yourself out there and sort of making somewhat extreme decisions or you know decisions that would seem extreme to a lot of other people generally resulted in the richest experiences and the most growth so you know I was like all right screw it let's go to New York and and work on socks and you know obviously you have to hedge hedge your bets and you have to mitigate your risk a little bit if it was sort of like do that and never ever come back to medicine then I probably wouldn't have done it but you know I was lucky enough to have a situation where I could go and do that for two years and then come back which is precisely what's happened so I've been back in Australia working now for 12 months and have been working on conscious step sort of in the in the spare time between that so still staying actively involved but it's much harder as anyone that's doing something on the side I'm sure can right and during that time we met in New York and yeah, that's right and you had a um... You were in the survival mode, right? Yeah. You kept very positive appearances, but yeah. uh, it wasn't all that peachy uh, on a, on no, a daily wasn't. basis. So what are some ways that you can share with the listeners you used to survive in this, in this very expensive city? I ate a lot of dollar pizza. <laughs> Trick number one. I'll probably pay for that later in life. God bless, Dollar. Yeah, look, you know, it was really hard. Uh, you know, you knew, you knew me then. You sort of, you saw where I was living, and you saw me in Bushwick and Bed Stuy, and yeah, it's really tough, man. People say a lot about New York City, and 
it's it's one of those experiences that doesn't really mean much to you go there and experience it yourself. And I think um, the hardship that seems to be common with so many experiences or people's experiences of New York is really what gives it that texture and what really gives people that positive associations with it. You know, it's it's such an amazing city with like infinite opportunity and regardless of what you're into, any kind of music or culture or, you know, entrepreneurship, any miniature facet of any of those things, there's something there. There's a community there of people. But at the same time, you know, the city is filled with people that go there to make it and to experience these things. And, you know, it's hard to get work there. And it's ridiculously, ridiculously expensive. You know, you went through all this yourself, obviously, you still are. But, you know, it, when I was got, when I was there, I was, you know, in a startup and just doing very early stages, wasn't making enough money to pay us. So had to sort of work this part-time job on the side you know, while still trying to make it with the startup, but also just, you know, affording day-to-day living, which is really hard. And I think it's, you know, when all these experiences, all these sort of hardships stack up on each other, that's when it's really hard. You know, when you have your first New York winter, you know, and <laughs> you don't have the correct clothes, and you don't have enough money to buy those clothes. And then you're living in some like crappy little apartment with like four other dudes living with cats that just like shit everywhere. And you have to get up in the morning and get on the G train, you know, along with a million other people, you know, travel 45 minutes to Midtown, get off. And then you're, you know, you're literally at Times Square, which is just the armpit of the universe and, you know, fighting, fighting with people along the way and jostling and you get to work at nine o'clock and you're already just exhausted, you know, (laughs) and then you might swipe your Metro card and you got no money on it. And you're like, man, that's not what I need right now. But you know, it's, it's looking back on all those that I think build the character. You know, I'm not rushing into any of those, ex- rushing to experience those things again. But uh, it, it really was, it really was great. So it's both good and not so good memories. That's right. Yeah, absolutely right. But it, uh, it, if you put it in reverse and, and have someone like you survive on the cheap in Sydney, would it be very different? I think that's a really good question. And I've been thinking about that a lot. Sydney is very expensive as well. I don't think it's as expensive as New York, but it's very comparable. If you have no money, but it's still think, expensive. Yeah, yeah. If you have no money, it really sucks. You know, I'm I'm lucky to be in a better financial position now just because I've started working. But I think the answer is no. I think it's easier to live here on less money. There's less stuff to do, right? So in New York, there's a million different free things which are awesome to go to. You know, in Sydney, there's not... Like it just yesterday, I was we were driving with my my co-founder who's here at the moment, driving through like Pitt Street Mall, which is the densest part of Sydney, and I was like, you know, this is the most population dense part of Sydney, arguably Australia, and that's probably like you know what you'd see <laughs> in bed style and like a you know four a.m. on a Saturday night kind of thing, let alone Times Square. And I think the density of people and the fact that it's a lot more relaxed here and that, you know, little things like public transport is clean and new, people aren't as stressed out, the weather is really good, uh, you have access to beaches and people, there's not that, not to the extent of New York, there's not that real sort of hustle attitude, which is a negative in some instances. If you're trying to start a, a company, I wouldn't say Sydney's the best place for it. But in terms of, you know, your mental well-being and happiness trying to, uh, you know, living on not much money, I'd say it's easy to do it in Sydney. And you think it's easier to connect with people who are less hustle-oriented? Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, 
a lot of people people come to Sydney to sort of to enjoy the weather, to you know, to enjoy the beaches. There's a massive backpacker population here, and everyone comes here. They go and they live in Bondi, you know, or they live in Coogee, or they go there to experience the beach. You know, as opposed to New York, what do people go there? People go there to make it as an actor or as a businessman or a, a whatever. Those are literal, literally opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, you know, they really don't to, mind working. 12-hour workdays or, or longer in New York, they can sign up for it and happily do this for a couple of years at least, man. Hard exactly. to imagine people doing this in Sydney. No, that's not to say there isn't people working hard here, but um, not at all. But it just makes it easier, and I think there's less of a, a vibe that encourages that here, again, by virtue of the good weather and just the, the, the more laid-back vibe of Australia generally. So soon after you came back, somehow you managed to give a TED talk in Australia yeah. and I was very impressed. So tell us a little bit about uh, what that experience was like and, and how did you choose the topic? Yeah, so it was TEDx UNSW. So that was my university. My university had decided to host the TEDx just because I had been so active in the university community over the years as an entrepreneur, going to as many events as I could, you know, sort of making it, not making a name for myself, but just um, being there all the time and going to these events and, you know, going to various pitching competitions. And by the time Conscious Step pulled through, I'd been at that university engaged in the entrepreneurial community for seven years. I, I think, and, and that was how they found me, you know, like they just knew me. Somebody asked the guy that ran the entrepreneurship department there. He's like, oh, you know, go chat to Hassan because he's done, you know, various pitching competitions and probably speaking before. So it's interesting how that opportunity arose. You know, it's not something that I could have sought out. You know, it, it, it happened because I'd just been there for seven years and just kept turning up and just kept sort of being around. It really just fell into my lap, which was amazing. You know, I'm sure many, probably everyone here that's, you know, that's listening is, you know, they're sort of interested in TED Talks and things like that. And posed with the question, they probably asked themselves, If I was to give a TED talk or any kind of talk, what would I speak about? And it's hard because the bar is so high. You know, not only do you want to give a technically good presentation, but you want to talk about something that's interesting. And with the internet now, there's sort of on social media and YouTube, there's just anyone. You know, it's a medium for anyone to say anything. So it almost feels like everything that has has been said has been said. You know, I've worked in sort of the social, obviously with Conscious Steps or social entrepreneur um, piece, but I didn't want to just talk about the same old tired sort of do good for the world because it's good kind of thing. You know, I wanted to, and I was speaking to university students, so I wanted it to be relevant to them and sort of settle on this idea about what are the things that really drive people to choose various career paths and pursuits. Um, and as you can imagine, there's been a lot of scientific evidence on it and It really comes down to, and none of these will be surprising, it's basically money, prestige, the opinion of others have of you and, and of the position, and, and then sort of, you know, enjoyment of the work um, itself and, and fulfillment. Within the doing good sector, which sort of involves, you know, charity or social enterprise, anything that, you know, any kind of work that has a purpose to it that improves the planet, I think. People are very hesitant to talk about selfish motivations in the same breath as something that does good for others. You know, no one wants to say, for some reason it's dirty to say, oh, I went into charity because I wanted to make money because um, it just doesn't feel right, doesn't sit with us well. But at the end of the day, if we want to get more people working within these kind of sectors and working towards solving these problems, we need to just be real about what it is that motivates people and Like, like I said, we know what motivates people. Money motivates people. Prestige motivates people. And so I sort of spoke about how, you know, working within the realm of social good can actually pay you well. 
and it can be very prestigious. You know, you look at people like Elon Musk now, who's changing the world with solar power and, you know, renewable energy, electric cars and that kind of stuff. That's now revered. You know, it's not just some like hippie sort of craziness as it probably was even five years ago. So, yeah, you know, that's really what I made my talk on. So how um, does uh, the term selfishness that is uh, controversial mm. in itself uh, tie into mm. all that? Well, I think it's um, referring to the idea that what are your selfish desires? Because we can not pretend, but we can focus on being selfless. But that's not a very good way to motivate people into a career. At the end of the day, you know, we are selfish animals. It's not because we're inherently evil people. It's because, you know, 50,000 years of biology of being selfish has gotten us here. So we're motivated by, you know, moving ourselves forward, accumulating resources, achieving status. And rather than fight that, maybe temper it, but rather than fighting it, acknowledging it, and then making a good case for working in social good uh, can, can satisfy their selfish desires and make you happy as a result. So, um, so yeah, that's really what that was referring to. It's like looking inwards towards what do you honestly selfishly want for yourself, um, knowing that that is what motivates you, and then sort of putting that within the context of social good and understanding that you can have a career in that area that will satisfy your selfish desires and make you happy. It connects uh, with, with the business a little bit as well right, that you have. But uh, you buy good-looking socks, but you're also helping a, yeah. a good cause. You, you're giving or someone, someone will true. plant trees on your behalf or something. That's right. You know what? I never even thought of that, but you're absolutely right. That's what that is. Yeah, that's a, a sort of selfish... Um, you know, desire to look good and feel good, but at the same time helping other people. So well, I have yeah, one pair of your socks, and and these are the only socks that make me think, oh, there is some kind of cause behind them. Like the others, yeah. like, I, don't, I don't, they don't have the story attached to them. They may have a story no. about where I bought them while I was traveling, and someone sure. gifted me a pair. Sure. But this, I know, like this has like a reach into the world that needs yep. support. You know. Oh, well, I'm gonna have to. You'll need more than one pair, Matt. I'll have to send you some more. <laughs> <laughs> or I can I can uh, selflessly purchase them, not That's wait right. for the handout. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, do it for you. <laughs> I much prefer a hookup since I have the direct channel. <laughs> That's um, true. Yeah, I guess along the same lines, I had a question here about what message would you like to spread in the world if you had uh, a massive reach, if mm. you could influence people's thoughts, views. It's a good question, um, and I guess you know it is sort of similar to. The similar question I posed myself with the TEDx, you know, I think um, it's really that, you know, I don't think appealing to people's generosity isn't going to help solve the world's problems because at the end of the day, there are a lot of problems, um, you know, just stacking up day after day after day. And it is a, by virtue of we're more exposed to them now with media and the internet, but it's also by virtue of there's just more problems. And so, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, thinking about what, what can we do to, to solve those and make sure that we have a future the planet has a future and yeah i think it's being you know being honest with ourselves like i said and you, you can satisfy everything that you want to achieve you can satisfy your own desires for you know the top level of maslow's hierarchy uh self-actualization i think it is you know you can achieve everything that you want to achieve selflessly for yourself and, and become the greatest person that you can be. But if you can do that towards the direction of helping the planet, then that's sort of the ultimate. Because even if you look at, you know, all the richest people in the world, the Bill Gates, the Warren Buffetts, what do they do after they've made millions of dollars? They turn around and they, you know, they put it into charity or they put it into, 
um, you know, some kind of social good, which sort of tells me that, you know, money's not the be all and end all, you know, they must have this sort of feeling of I need to do something good with it. So thankfully, and yeah, again, they're, they're not all evil. That's right. And that tells me that in order to be happy, there must be some element of I need to do good for other people. So, yeah, I think it's just that, the message of you can help yourself and help others at the same time. Like put a, an oxygen mask on yourself first and then help that's exactly your child. That's a great analogy. Oh, that's such a great analogy. Should have used that. <laughs> I think I've, I've heard it somewhere, but it always fits in with this. With yeah, this no, that is theme. really good, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. And this is like the justifiable selfishness, right? Where, That's right. It yeah. really is, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't sit well with people for some reason. It just doesn't. But, um, you know, hopefully we can get over that because I think it's the best way to move forward. So uh, what are you working on in terms of personal development? And what would you like to improve about your lifestyle at the moment? So a question that I, you know, have asked myself pretty recently with the new year rolling around, um, you know, I'm not a big like New Year's resolution guy, but it's a good opportunity to sort of take stock on things. So one of the big things is sort of meditation. Um, and this is something that comes up again and again, you know, with a lot of people. And it's so funny because if you look at meditation, it's literally five to ten minutes a day of sitting there and doing nothing. You don't have to. You can do it anywhere. You don't need any. You don't need any equipment. You know, you don't need any specialized skills. And the evidence of the of the benefits are just more and more. You improve concentration, improve sleep, less stress, less anxiety. Like who doesn't want that from ten minutes a day sitting there? Yet it's so hard. So many people Tell can't me do about it. it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I've Absolutely. struggled myself for so long. And so I, I look at that as like, well, this is probably our greatest place of leverage. Like if I can just get this sorted out. So I guess, you know, well, my big thing this year is I went and bought a $30 app and I was like, hey, look, I bought $30. I put $30 in this app. I'm definitely going to use it now because otherwise I'm going to be pissing myself. Not <laughs> $30 for it. So, yeah, I, you know, over nighttime, I'll just come back and, and um, have a sort of recorded a guided meditation. And I wasn't like really into the guided meditation thing, but I do it because it gives me sort of structure and I wouldn't sort of do it without it. So, so that's one thing. Have, have you had a successful week? every day yeah no i have i mean at the moment it's tough as well because i'm just starting this seven day on seven day off roster um and my co-founders in town but i have been pretty good this week i think i've uh i've done sort of three out of the last four days which i'm pretty happy about and yeah the thing with meditation is it needs to you know by the sounds of it i think you probably need to be doing 20 minutes a day every day and at that stage you're going to start getting the benefits And that sounds like, oh, my God, I'll never be able to do that. But that's sort of what I want to build up towards. So, yeah, I think that's a priority for me this year. I had a small um, uh, small hack for myself. I'm learning Spanish. I've been learning Spanish recently. So uh, I got a guided meditation rec recordings in Spanish. Hmm. So I'm doing both. <laughs> so I, 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 try, I tried it a couple times. That's amazing. I mean, I understand 50% of what the guy is saying, you know. That is amazing. <laughs> it's actually incredible. I love that. I love that. That's a real, that's a I, real hack right there. I just, I can't stop hacking life. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere. All aspects. I got to do it. No, that's really cool. Yeah, so I'm um, doing that. What I'm really trying to do is because I'm trying to, you know, I've got this full-time sort of medicine thing, which is about 40 hours a week, give or take. And, you know, I really want to um, still make 
meaningful contributions to the business, which is going, you know, which is still growing, which is great. But really getting out, like really working hard, being really industrious and very productive is something that has been an ongoing challenge for me. And I just continue to struggle and I wonder if it's even possible. You know, it's trying to ring out 50, 60, 70 hour sort of productive weeks. It's the warm um, in Sydney. The weather is too nice. I've got to go to the beach, man. I can't help it. You know, so, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm really interested in is how do I come back at the end of the day, you know, and after a huge draining day and put in another good hour or two, you know, or how do I find, you know, how do I do that and also get the motivation to go to the gym? Um, I just started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as well. So that's been really cool. But, you know, finding time to do all that. And it's sort of, you know, am I being unrealistic? You know, am I just going to sort of be dissatisfied with myself, continually letting myself down? You know, but at the same time, it's like, well, if I want to achieve what I want to achieve here, I need to have more output. There's no way around it, right? If you want to hit certain metrics. That's right. Like you can, you can optimize and you can hack, but the one finite thing is the time, you know, and... It's, it's sort of like, how, how do I use that time better? And it just comes down to sheer willpower sometimes. I'm not sure what it is. And, you know, it was easier when you're just sort of full-time doing something and you're sort of, that was what New York was so great for. You throw yourself in the deep end and you just sort of go because there's nothing else to do. But it's so much harder when you already have sort of this job, which is fairly satisfying in itself and gives you the financial means to then hustle on top of that. It's a lot harder. So, so yeah, I'm looking, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do that actually. Have you, have you come across, you know, have you come across that struggle yourself or spoken to any people that have good insight into, into that? Yeah. I mean, there's always a conflict. It's always a dilemma, the crossroads of being nice to yourself and, you know, forgiving and not beat yourself up about the things that you're missing out on, uh, in terms of productivity and, and achievements and stuff like that. And on the other hand, it's, it's this hustle you know you got to do it you got to make lists and go down the lists and and check things off and feel good about it really good and then once in a while or fairly regularly you hit the wall you know it's like okay it doesn't matter if i have lists or free time it doesn't matter you know i just want to do it um yeah but it feels like um for me it's a combination of rewarding myself for uh, for hard work with the stuff that i would have been doing have i been just slacking off just you know give myself a little bit of that mindless entertainment or something you know? and realizing where my comfort zones are and pushing myself outside not as much as i can but enough to remind myself that that i'm self-aware i know i'm i get too comfortable then take a step outside of it, you know. Yeah. Maybe take a class in something that, that you've been wanting to do, even though it feels like pain to, to start you know, from scratch. Um, maybe um, get on with uh, like learning a language or dance class or um, martial art or something like that. Yeah. And, and if it doesn't work out as well as you thought it would, be okay with it. And, and, uh, and always ask yourself, is it because I am, uh, I'm giving up too soon or is it because I have other priorities and... And you never quite know the answer. And it's very difficult to stop comparing yourself to others who are super high achievers. And and part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is to uh, show people that um, you don't always have to 
listen and look at overachievers and, and measure your success and productivity by their standards because it can be very daunting. Uh, I think a lot of people do plenty and and they have interesting and fulfilling lives. Maybe sometimes they don't realize that, but but that's that's the way it goes. And and sometimes people tell me like you're doing so much, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know if you think that. Like I don't think that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting is, too. Like recently, I've sort of been like I'm. Like, I'm pretty happy. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I have a work that is fulfilling. You know, I earn enough to have a like a, a place that, you know, I'm happy with and comfortable in. You know, I have interesting people in my life. And it's like, shit, I'm, I'm pretty happy now. And, and it's sort of like you ask yourself, why am I grinding harder and harder and harder? And is this actually detracting from what I have in front of me, which is actually pretty good, you know? And... I think definitely there's this, certainly in America as well, you know, we put people on the pedestal, This, you know, the, the people that, the Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musks, and they're on this pedestal, but like, I reckon if most of us lived a week in the life of them, we really wouldn't want that. Probably not. You know? Like, probably not. But at the same time, it's really what is idolized, and it's uh, really driving so long. So yeah, you know, it's another thing that I'm thinking about, tussling yeah. with. Yeah, uh, we get shamed for not doing things a little bit harder. Not directly, but by this constant mm. uh, feed of uh, posts on medium.com and, and you know, uh, popular posts on Twitter and Facebook and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and yeah. how people engineer their external lives uh, that yeah. they post on social media that surely makes a lot of people insecure. Mm, 100%. And, I mean, I like to know people who, who achieved some crazy success in social media mm. and stuff because I want to know from the engineering standpoint, how did it happen? You know, how, how did yeah. they accumulate so, so much attention and f- followers? But it's not necessarily for everyone, you know, and, and, mm. and I think the, the current virus of the mind is that people think that they deserve uh, that same level of attention for doing yeah. not so much. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I recently got a, I had like an old phone for ages and I just got like a new, well, not so new, the Nexus, which is huge now. So I'm actually, I actually look at Instagram now. I never used to. And man, it just stresses me out. And it just, it saddens me just how, it's just this vehicle for people's vanity, you know? And it, oh man, it really, it's really depressing. You know, it, it really is. And I, I don't really want to go down this track of thought, I think, because it's, you know, everyone is everyone is guilty of it to some degree, you know. And I think, again, this comes back to some kind of biological imperative to sort of pull ahead of the pack and achieve renown. But, you know, now you just have Instagram and you have – it's just this picture into, like, the the most unsavory elements of of the human condition. Uh, maybe I'm being a little harsh um, <laughs> on, on, you know, There's got to be something sort of... positive about it, too. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of inspirational stuff um, sure. that people get from there. But I like how someone said, and I agree with that, um, that it hasn't changed our behavior, the social media apps and, and such. Mm. It just exposed it <laughs> on a massive well, scale. Yeah, look, you're right. You're, you're right, I think. You know, now you're... You're having status updates about things which you'd only think, and in the past you'd think it. You know, you think like, "Wow, I look really great in this whatever," or you know, "How how great are my awesome six pack abs?" Mm-hmm. Which is sort of fine to keep in your mind, I think, and those kind of things can be helpful to move you along. But you know, when you use it a way to sort of you know attention whore, 
then it, I don't know, like and each to his own, I think it's fine, but I think it really feeds into this reliance on other people's approval for your happiness, which I, th I think that's a dangerous path to take down because at the end of the day, if you put your happiness into the hands of other, of anything that's not you, then you're not in charge of your happiness anymore. So thanks so much for uh, joining me here. And I hope uh, people got a little bit more insight into what, what it's like to be an Australian in Australia huh. and in other places of the world. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, it was great. You know, thanks, um, you're very welcome. It was uh, great to chat as always, Vasily. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to hearing who else you bring on the show. Maybe uh, we'll have you back for a more in-depth discussion on one of these topics. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. What's, what's the most common way of saying see you later in Australia? The most common way is probably like, just that. See you later. See you, mate. See you, but mate. Some, see you, mate. But we have some, you know, go and see you around like a wrestle. Uh, in a wild crocodile. <laughs> no one's... <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no one it. actually says these people, but yeah. <laughs>